Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. With me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. And this week, the topical discussion is about a bit of a buzzword, upskilling. Now, Heather, we, we picked this word um, because it seems to be around all over the place at the moment. And my initial reaction to the topic was, how is it different to training. So I thought, really, to me, that is the main thing to get over. Is it just a fancy way of saying training? What do you think? Well, I think it's more than training because it's actually, my interpretation is that it's actually bringing people, uh, bringing people on to be able to um, succeed in their role with changing needs of the business or I mean digital skills you know seems to be at the forefront of all of this this upskilling so you might have the knowledge um, you might have the ability but you might not be able to use modern technology to its full potential so I think I think it's slightly different to training but when you look at it it's actually about imparting information and hoping that your staff then utilize it for the progress of the business really yeah what do you think what i sort of took from it that it upskilling involves training but the concept of upskilling is to enable your your workforce to fill these new positions so Mm. we've talked about the future of the workforce and some of these jobs of the future before and you know some of them will never have existed before so your workforce might to need to learn some new skills in order to to actually be able to fulfill that role so that's sort of what I took from it I think it's I think it's a culture and a society thing though as well this whole shift towards uh, how we're going to learn and how we're going to develop into the sort of roles that we've got for the future I think it's bigger than just one organization I think it's got to involve a cultural and a societal shift in order to to actually meet the demands of the future. Yeah, I but but you know the one thing that I kept sort of coming across when I was doing my research and and it's a question that that I'm really interested to know the answer to. Are we only talking about digital skills? Because <laughs> we seem to, we seem to be, you know, that seems to be everything I was looking at, you know, various articles that all the time it's talking about digital capability, AI. Is it only digital or is it broader yeah, than that? I'm going to agree with you. Everything that I found, it talks about bridging the digital divide. But I think a lot of the stuff we've been talking about in the show over the last couple of years really has been about more shifts in society, more shifts in the way that business and community and governments work together you know in in terms of um companies with a purpose and uh, community organizations surely there's some element of upskilling involved there but i think it has sort of the digital market has cornered the upskilling concept anyway that's what i think yes and i think i found um i found on the pwc website they do a sort of um like a sort of magazine and they'd got an article about um, upskilling and then when you when you when you looked at the article it took you through and they were quite interesting actually some little mini videos um about why it's important um how it how it might work 
what it might mean for the future of the business they were talking specifically about digital and the financial world obviously then I did find another article that was coming at the same argument but from the legal professions way of thinking so but but we can't get away from the fact that this digital thing is sitting in the middle of it all because particularly with with COVID and the way that it's really come you know digital technology has played such a massive part in the last nine months that um we can't ignore it you know we can't pretend that it's not there i found the same article on the pwc website actually i thought it was really really good and loads of um like say little mini videos and articles uh, one that i picked upon though that um did move a little bit away from tech and into other skills uh, did you see the article called resilience as a skill that's just as important as tech know-how and i thought mm-hmm. that was a really valid point is that amidst all these changes what you need is some employees who are able to cope with the change and able to cope with all the you know all the significant shifts that are taking place around them so that's something to worth considering is the soft skills as well as those tech skills how how can you help your employees to manage this changing landscape of the of the um future of work yeah and for them not to feel that they are left behind or that they're going to be um they're going to be left behind or they're going to uh be overtaken by you know all, all the young people and you know all the people who know how and then they're going to be managed out of the business in some way shape or form which you know is quite alarming the um i, f- I did find an article about how to start upskilling you know if that's something that you want to do how do you even begin where do you even begin and um and I'll, I'll put a link to this and and all of the other things that we that we're talking about on our website which is the business.community but it starts talking about well you know you kind of have to start with doing a skills gap analysis you know what are the gaps in your workforce and in their skills and capabilities because if you don't really know what you're trying to achieve you don't know what you've got you don't know what you need how can you even begin to plan your upskilling program so I thought that was really important and yet a lot of organizations smaller organizations might think oh that's just the sort of stuff that the the big boys do but it isn't actually taking time to look at what you need whether it's whether it's on your board whether it's in your your workforce whether it's whether it's in your trustees you've got to know what's missing before you can do something to fix it if that makes sense yeah uh, just to give you a, an idea of the scale of this issue I, I found some stats from the world economic forum and that they say that um by 2022 which isn't very far away at all now is it 54 percent of all employees will need some form of reskilling and this 54 percent yeah, yeah that's by 2022 that's you know that's a massive job isn't it yeah yeah it's going to take again, change in leadership style as well so it's you know you don't it's not just about getting your employees to be skilled in the digital world how about your leadership style what what do you need to brush up on that you know yeah. how, how are you going to support your staff emotionally and how are you going to help them 
understand the uncertainty because a lot of these jobs I understand from reading other articles is that they, you know they're not going to be jobs for life either there's going to be uncertainty in the workplace so you know people are going to be um, taking various jobs and moving around from job to job maybe doing lots of part-time jobs as well that's a whole other thing for people to get used to I mean both the managers and the employees yeah, totally. Going back to the, the PwC article, so they they had some interesting statistics as well. And the one that really caught my eye, and it was around, you know, why would you even do this? And one of the things that they say is that it will boost productivity. And there was a global survey carried out um, of office workers by um, a software company. Uh, and 80% of workers said that they would expect to be more productive if they learned new skills. So people you know people recognize that that there is value in this if the staff recognize that there's value in this then there must be uh, and you know and there are reasons why you would do it and that's we need to just make sure that we know why we're doing it what we're doing what we're trying to fix and what the benefits are and it's not just about um digital skills you know in this article they talk about boosting soft skills retaining top talent you know keeping them within the business every time somebody every time somebody leaves the business and you recruit it it costs a lot of money so the engagement that you've talked about and just it's not only the financial um if we do this we'll get this it's if we don't do this what happens i think that's that's the big that's the big message that i've taken from it yeah, so well, I've taken from it a certain sense of panic. <laughs> <laughs> panic, but it, it, it's a bit, it's a big issue. And obviously, we've been talking about the changing face of the workplace. So, I, I think you know there with, there is this common acceptance that stuff is changing. But to be honest, we don't totally know how it's changing. Mm. You know, that's not settled. Part of this uncertainty is we still. You know, we, we don't totally know. There's all sorts of uncertainties around the pandemic, around Brexit, never mind all of the digital changes that are taking place. So, yes, don't forget the soft skills and the supporting your employees' emotional well-being as well in amongst all of this. You're listening to the business community on Calon FM. And in our news section this week, I have to admit, I don't know about you, Tracy, but it's been really difficult to find a story that is not related to the pandemic, the American election or Brexit or what's not happening with Brexit or happening with Brexit. And it's everywhere. Yeah. Did you find that? I did. I think we've, we've spotted this trend. Well, with the B, we refused to talk about Brexit for ages, didn't we? Because it was just every news item and we were digging deep to find news. But yeah, it's been pandemic and American election, it's going to go back to Brexit, isn't it? So, although I, I reckon the American election is going to keep on giving us some interesting stories, right? Right, the yeah. way through. <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, I did weed out a couple of things that, um, that I thought were, were interesting. The first one, because I was getting a bit despondent, I went to my, um, well, a, a favorite of ours, which is Positive News. Um, so I went to their website to see what if they could put a positive spin on anything about what's happening at the moment. And there was an article on there from the beginning of October uh, and it was about 
it was talking initially about the you know the high street empty premises on the high street the death of the high street all of that and i thought well this doesn't sound very positive but actually the story <laughs> yeah the story then went on to say that actually there's 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 quite an emerging um feeling that whilst we know that a lot of the vacant premises on high streets are owned by property portfolios who have never perhaps been to the high street that the, the, the premises is in um, and it can be really difficult to track down these absent landlords um, actually if those spaces could be used by the community to either incubate small businesses give small crafters and makers a presence on the high street it actually can invigorate the high street so it's not it's not just the big boys that can invigorate a high street we've got out-of-town developments for a lot of this so so it's a really really interesting story and there was, there's a report being written on it and they they talk about a couple of examples which i thought was really interesting so it's not always about it being a shop uh it's not always about it being um um a, a, a cafe or anything like that so these are really interesting so they've got the old library in bodmin in cornwall which have you ever been to bodmin uh, no i haven't actually uh, i quite like bodmin it's it's uh yeah, I quite like Bodmin. Anyway, the old library, yeah. it's, a, it's a significant local building. It's been used by a community business as a cultural facility, drawing visitors to the high street. So it's bringing, it's giving people another reason to come to the high street. And while they're there, they spend money. Um, there's in Cowley and Oxford, there's an independent cinema that people are trying to bring into community ownership. Again, it will bring people into town for a different reason uh, and then oh, it, there, there are various community projects um, one in Ashford in Kent a shop that allows local businesses to sell their stuff on the high street um, and they also do like community-based craft activities so it's much more bringing the high street back into the ownership of the local people and one point that they make is if you actually if you if the community are using these spaces the community knows what the community needs more than yeah. anybody else so I, I i love that story i just think it it, it is positive um and i i think we're going to see more of this in well, in the high street I do well, I hope so. yeah i i think that high streets that have got small interesting shops are way more exciting than the ones with the big brands that you can get anywhere mm. like you mm. say sometimes you could just be in any out of town shopping center couldn't you and, yeah. and actually it's lovely when you go to a, a town or a city that's got little independent shops it's, it would be my ideal place to go christmas shopping for example mm. somewhere where you know you're going to get something unique yeah, and a bit different. I mean, you know, we we've got like Brighton. You know, the is it the lanes in Brighton yeah. and and the shambles in York? Is it? You know, these just sort of tiny little, as you say, independents. And you sort of go, oh, I wonder what's in there, rather than walking past a big national chain and going, well, I know what's in there because it'll be the same as was in mine, you know, at home or whatever. So anyway, so that's that's quite a nice little story. What what did you happen upon, Tracy? Well, I went to my safe space as well, but my safe space is very different to yours. I went to the ONS website and looked at statistics. <laughs> okay, as you do. 
I think that says a lot about the difference between the two of us, doesn't it? <laughs> to be honest, Tracy, I did go to the ONS to see if I could find anything. And I looked at it and I went, I'll never be able to make sense out of this. So I disappeared onto positive news. Well, before I go on to what I found at the ONS, I just want to give a shout out to the National Library of Wales, because I recently I was looking for some market data and I was pointed in the direction of the National Library of Wales by Gareth at Business Line. And uh, he said that if you live in Wales, you've got a Welsh postcode and you sign up for an account with National Library of Wales, it opens up a plethora of resources to you, including market data from an organisation called Statista. And I've got to say it was brilliant, but be careful because I went down several rabbit holes the amazing thing I found while I was looking at the data, I'd found the market data, I'd sent that on, I'd dealt with that. But then I found this other thing with all these old maps and there was a tithe maps and you could get these tithe maps and you could get um, different maps of the 18th and 17th century. You could get it overlaid on top of the modern map. So I could see the street where I live and what it looked like a field basically growing turnips oh, Wow! <laughs> and who owned this land and who had rented that field from them and then all the surrounding area it was absolutely fascinating so not necessarily business related but the market data was absolutely business related and if you are based in Wales you've got a Welsh postcode if you need in any of that sort of statistical data then it's well worth going to the National Library of Wales website. Wow. I wonder if there's an English equivalent. There probably is, but I didn't go looking for it because I've no. got all those codes. <laughs> Maybe you could report back, Heather, and let Maybe, me know if you yes. find it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to the ONS. I found a couple of reports that came out on Tuesday this week, and it's about the UK labour market. We've heard some of the headlines in the news about the unemployment rate, but what I thought was really interesting was just breaking down some of that data. So the first report is um, the UK labour market, November 2020, uh, just in general in the UK, and suggesting that, as we've heard in the headlines, that um, number of payroll employees in the UK has fallen uh, it's fallen since March by 782,000. And it's it's slowed that the fall has slowed since the beginning of the pandemic, but that's one hefty fall. Mm. And um, vacant, vacancies have continued to recover, but still below the levels seen before the coronavirus pandemic. And the UK unemployment rate in the three months to September 2020 was estimated at 4.8% which is um, 0.9 percentage points higher than a year ago and 0.7 percentage points higher than the previous quarter. But, so there's all sorts of those figures there. But what I found really useful was another report which separated these statistics into the different regions around the UK. So um, for the three months end in September 2020, the highest employment rate estimate in the UK was in the southeast. So this is the employment rate. And the lowest was in Northern Ireland. And the highest unemployment rate in the UK was in the northeast. 
and the lowest was in Northern Ireland. Uh, so I don't know how you can have both the um, lowest employment and the um, lowest unemployment. Clearly, there's that gap in the middle that we've talked about before. Yeah. Uh, calculate these figures. Um, so if you're interested in in the detail of these statistics, I'm not going to read them all out now because there are loads. But just looking regionally, so you can look at London, the East Midlands, the Northeast, uh, Northern Ireland, all of those areas separated out and just see what the impact is, what's happening in the region where you, uh, you're you operating with your business or where you're living, um, or maybe where your customers are, where your suppliers are. And um, if you want to break it down and I can assure you that you don't have to go into the raw data. The beauty of the ONS, as I've always said, is you can just go to the second section, the second chapter in every report and the section called main points. And it will just pull out what it sees are the key and um, significant figures for um, this particular reporting period. So if you're interested, we'll put the link for this and everything else we talk about on our website, accompanying our blog, which is at the business.community. Our review this week is of a book and we both have physical copies and it's a rather unusual subject matter, uh, psychopaths, essentially. Now, Heather came up with this suggestion. <laughs> not sure what that says about you, Heather, but it was based on a, another book that you already had on your shelf, wasn't it? So you had a book called Surrounded by Idiots. And this book, which was published at the beginning of October, is by the same author, Thomas Erickson, and it's called Surrounded by Psychopaths. Subtitle, How to Stop Being Exploited by Others. Now, and I bought it straight away because I've actually read a book already about psychopaths, which I really, really enjoyed. I read it really quickly. Um, I made the mistake of really, um, reading it while I was away on a work trip for a week in a hotel. Did freak myself out a little bit. <laughs> Um, but that book, I, I will give it a mention, and I think I've mentioned it on the show before, is Psychopathic Cultures and Toxic Empires by Will Black. And I'm, I'm sad to say that I bought that on Kindle, and I do wish I had a hard copy version of that one. I really enjoyed it. Now, this book isn't without its merit. It isn't my favourite book, but I, I found it was interesting and confirming what I'd already read sort of in the Will Black book. Now, okay. are psychopaths new to you, Heather? Um, well, <laughs> well, according to this book, not. I'm surrounded by them. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say you are one then. <laughs> I have to admit that I, um, I had this book with me when I was working at a desk in um, a charity that I'm involved with. I've taken it with me so I could sort of, you know, have a little read through it while I was drinking my coffee. And somebody saw it and they said, um, this is something we need to be worried about, Heather, because you've got a book by uh, surrounded by psychopaths. But, um, well, of course, we are surrounded by psychopaths. I think it's, well, I, th I think it's important to just mention that this book is not, it's not so much about um, the diagnosis and um, behaviours of a psychopath, an extreme psychopath. I think we need to just, you know, what a lot of us might consider 
to be somebody with psychopathic tendencies, etc. This is much more about uh, if we can understand um, the way that people might try to manipulate us, the people, the way that people might try to influence us, then that could impact on our ability to not be not be manipulated and not be influenced in a way that we don't want to be. Okay, I've got a, a premise for you to consider. Go I was on. reading it and it was saying how not to be manipulated by a psychopath. Okay. Did you not think it also was a very good handbook on how to manipulate if you are a psychopath? Well, yeah, yeah, because it goes into depth about um how you know how to how how a psychopath might manipulate this type of person or that type of person. So yeah, I agree. It's almost like um, and, and, you know, we're not uh, not for a minute. Are we making light of, um, you know, people with psychopathic tendencies where they are problematic? Um, but, uh, yeah, manipulation exists, whether you're buying a car, whether you're um, whether you're choosing which way to go in a shop when you, you know, or what attracts you or um, when they put the. Where they put the eggs where the wine's always been and you suddenly end up buying six eggs you know it, it manipulation exists and it can be used very cleverly but i think that the book talks very much more about protecting ourselves against psychopaths and there is a fantastic quote by author john ronson who um if you haven't if you haven't uh, read any of his stuff or or listen to him speak because he is fascinating um he the the quote is from a book um, that he wrote called The Psychopath Test, A Journey Through the Madness Industry. He quotes, she said, if you're beginning to feel worried that you may be a psychopath, if you recognize some of those traits in yourself, if you're feeling a creeping anxiety about it, that means you aren't one. <laughs> That's a really good point. It's not a self-aware state. <laughs> I... I... I've got to say, I uh, I really approve of the quotes at the beginning of every chapter. You know, that always gets me. I, it's always a big thumbs up from me when there's a quote at the beginning of a chapter. Um, it does help when the quote is relevant to the chapter that you're you're about to read, of course. Um, but the other thing that I, I wanted to um, highlight, I don't know if you, you did any more research on this as well. I looked into the DISC theory that um, Thomas refers to in here. Now, apparently he, he spells this out in a lot more detail in his first book, Surrounded by Idiots. I've not yeah. read the book, so I don't know. But he, he talks about um, this DISC theory, which is um, a quadrant, four personality traits in a quadrant, dominance, influence, steadiness, and compliance, hence DISC. Yeah, um, the, he 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 sort of frames a lot of the descriptions through the book on this theory. So he does have to explain the theory again. Which, when I was looking at some of the reviews on Amazon, people were saying, "Oh, it's it's repeating a lot of what was in the first book." But for me, having not read the first book, I found it quite useful. But did you go on and do uh, a test? Because you can find these tests for free in various places. Yes, I did. I did do the DISC personality report. I mean, it's very, it, at a very basic level and it, it's free, of course. So, yeah, I went and did mine. Did you do yours? I did um, one with one, two, three tests. 
Yeah, right, so that's, yeah. I don't know how, um, how um, good that is, but it was interesting anyway. So, so do you want to share your results on... Uh, okay okay so the first and, and the thing is so i'm a myers-briggs fan so you know this is this is a whole different this whole different thing but um i the way that i came out and then i was reading my description and i was like what do you mean? i don't think that's me i really you know whereas with myers-briggs i've always felt that it's quite um quite accurate and there are others that i've done that are quite accurate anyway i digress so the first, so I am an, um, I come out as S-I-D-C, so I'm steadiness. Okay. Dominant um, in, um, factor. Um, and then, so then if you go to this book and you read um, red dominant behavior, behavior, the alpha or super achiever, um, it just doesn't sound like me at all. The easiest way to recognize a red person is to look them in the eye. The reason is that they will do something that most people do not. They will meet your gaze without looking away. Most people don't meet your gaze for more than a few seconds before looking away briefly. But red people like to look a little longer since they want to see who you really are. Maybe I do that. I don't know. <laughs> Firm handshake. You know, don't walk all over me. I'm like, oh, OK, I'm not sure. So I thought you were um, steady first. No, yeah, steady, which is which is red. Oh right, okay. Yeah, I've got myself confused a little bit. Yeah, but mind you, this book is in black and white. Maybe I'm looking at the wrong one. Well, I hope so. Carry on. What were you? Let's have a look at that. One, I, I've got to agree with you that I didn't immediately recognise myself, but um, I did read as well that. This will vary depending on where you are, what you're doing, what mood you're in, you know, what situation yeah. you're in. But strangely enough, I come across as um, fairly equal, dominant, influence, and steady. Okay. And the all-rounder. Um, apart from compliance. <laughs> ah, okay. Well, so, says the woman who's had hair in every colour imaginable. Okay, fair dues. But yeah, just see my, when I do other tests, for example, when I look at my learning styles, I tend to find that I'm equal across most of them. So maybe I'm just like on the fence, middle of the road. Maybe I, you're good at borrowing characteristics. Yeah, I just fit into whatever. Or maybe I'm too compliant and I just answer the questions well. <laughs> So I didn't find that, that doing that test necessarily helped me. I sort of understood it when I was reading what was in the book. I just confused myself a little bit more by going and doing the test. Yeah, and actually, as I just look now, because the um, as I've just revisited his chart, which is in black and white, so I have used the colour reference from his book. So actually I'm green, which I feel much, much happier about. Oh, yes, that sounds a bit better, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't even know what red and green means specifically, but uh, I think I'd rather be green than red. Just red seems a bit angry, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, exactly. That's why I was a little bit thrown. Anyway, I don't know where that rates, rates you or I on the, um, the psychopathic um, <laughs> scale, 
but I think it might help us to protect ourselves from people who are um, psychopaths. Well, it, it is a bit interesting when you look at um, where psychopaths tend to end up, then they tend to end up in senior positions because those sorts of traits are encouraged in business leaders, in lawyers, in doctors, politicians. So um, it's, it's quite interesting. I, I have to admit, I didn't recognise any psychopaths in my circle. Did you? You don't have to name names, by the way. No, I don't think so. I, but maybe maybe that's because they wouldn't be attracted to somebody who's like me. You can sleep safely at night knowing that the psychopath isn't attracted to you. <laughs> well, well, let's face it, nobody is, but there we go. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I Yes. I don't think so. But just going back to your point about um, the people who are successful in their careers, and that's where psychopaths tend to, to, to levitate to, uh, I think that's going to change. Because I think some of the characteristics that this book talks about um, as being an indication of somebody, somebody being um, a psychopath is, is not going to survive in the, in the modern way of working. So... Um, I hope I'm proved right. Me too. Our profile section this week is includes a lady who sort of came to our attention partly because of October being Black History Month um, and partly because um, although neither of us have watched the, the, the Netflix series, it's a three-parter, um, we it's been on our radar for a little while. We're talking about a lady called Madam C.J. Walker, about whom the um, series Self Made um, was based. And she was an entrepreneur, philanthropist and act activist. And she was born in very poor, um, a very poor family, was orphaned by the age of seven and then almost by a, a sheer fluke, um, travelled to Missouri where her brothers were and they worked as barbers and she ended up in that sort of environment and then just became this amazing businesswoman. Um, it wasn't her intention, it just, as I say, it just happened by accident. Fascinating story, Tracy. You haven't seen the, you haven't seen the series, but did you know a lot about Madam C.J. Walker before? I'd never heard of her. And I was kicking myself for not having watched the series before we talked about her. But then I read that it had received criticism for historical inaccuracies and use of artistic license. So the title is Self-Made, inspired by the life of Madam C.J. Walker. So obviously they've fictionalised some of her yeah. life story, which you, you do, don't you, for a drama. But it, um, the lead role is played by uh, the lovely actress Octavia Spencer. So I will be making a point of watching it because I think she's absolutely fantastic and I'm sure I'll enjoy it because of her performance. I think she was nominated for an Emmy. Um, let me just check. Yeah, Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Limited Series or Movie. That's quite a long uh, award title. 
So, yeah, that's on my list. And I'm sure I'll find out a little bit more about her and then kick myself because I didn't mention it in the show. Although, to be fair, if I'd mentioned something I'd seen in the TV show and it was part of the fiction, then I'd have had egg on my face anyway, wouldn't I? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so I've never heard of her, but she's absolutely inspirational. Um, The first American woman to become African-American woman as well, to become a self-made millionaire. Mm. Which you you never, maybe it's taught, maybe it's taught in America, I don't know. But um, to give some context, she was born in 1867. So this is quite a while ago, you know, back in the days when, so here we are. So she's... um, She's African-American um, at that time, uh, female, um, orphaned. She was a divorcee. She married and divorced. So she had all the odds stacked against her, really. And yet she she started to experience hair loss um, because she'd been working um, so hard. So in 1904, she, um, she started using... A product called the one, the great wonderful hair grower, right? But she joined the sales name, isn't it? I know. Does what she was on the tin, <laughs> exactly. But she joined the sales team of black female sales agents. So a little bit like you know, we today we see people who sell Arbon products, Tropic products, you know, um, aloe vera products. You know, I liked it so much I started to try and sell it and that's when she she just things just took off um to the point where she married an ad man and with um 1.25 million dollars launched her own line of hair products and straighteners and for african american women which i just think is amazing and she called it madam walker's wonderful hair grower i don't know if that would be allowed now <laughs> I'm not sure it would. Um, I don't, you have to be very careful about what you promise with your products, don't you? I, I see she's described in several places, uh, and one of the resources I liked um, most of all was womenshistory.org. And on there, she's described as entrepreneur, philanthropist, and activist. Uh, she's she had quite an interesting life she did her husband you mentioned he was in advertising and he helped her to establish the business but did you know they actually got divorced in 1910 which again in 1910 divorce is not an easy thing to do and then she relocated and built a factory um, um, for the walker manufacturing company so yeah she's one independent woman absolutely I must just mention that I said 1.25 million. Of course, that wasn't 1.25 million. It was 1.25 dollars, <laughs> and, and from that she launched her, um, her 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 business. But when she died, that's when she was worth over a million uh, million dollars. Yeah. So I understand the the philanthropic part of what she did. Um, actually came to a conclusion and just before she died as she died of kidney failure she changed her will and and bequeathed two-thirds of future profits of the business to charity as well as giving out thousands of dollars to various individuals and schools so she's uh she's 
contributed to the YMCA. She covered tuition for six um, African-American students to study and uh, became active in the anti-lynching movement. That's pretty nasty. But, uh, wow. And I can't believe I've never heard of her. No, amazing. So they, they teach her um, about her in, in the US. So that's Madam C.J. Walker. Uh, fascinating story. A woman that seemed to have achieved great success despite all the odds. Um, and you can check out a, a version of her story based on her story uh, via Netflix. It's still available. Um, we're not on commission for this. Um, but <laughs> but if, if, you, if you want to find out more, then it's self-made um, featuring uh, Octavia, Octavia Spencer. That's all we've got time for this week on the business community. We do hope you'll join us again next week where we'll have more news, more views and more reviews for you. You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.